We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. His eyes burnt into hers. There's a very fine line between pleasure and pain. They're two sides of the same coin. One not existing without the other. Said Christian Grey to Anastasia Steele in Fifty Shades of Grey, it was a sentiment that the owners of the publisher, Random House, came to understand during World War II when they were working with the Nazis from Prussia where Karl Heinrich Bertelsmann was from. And indirectly, he's the man that brought you the Fifty Shades series. Karl was born in the town of Gutersloh in the Westphalia region of Germany near the Rhine River. He was one of four sons. He started work as a clerk in 1811, but those were not good times to be a young man of military age. The emperor, Napoleon, was getting ready to invade Russia and conscripting as many men as possible for his Grande Armée. Karl didn't see that as a good career path. Let's face it, he would have almost undoubtedly died in the next year when Napoleon's then, no longer Grande Armée, was beating an unceremonious retreat from Russia during a bitterly cold winter. It was a good thing for Karl that he decided to leave town. By our standards, he didn't go far, But by the standards of his day, when walking was how most people got around, 50 kilometres was a long way. He was apprenticed in Vlotho, a nearby town, and learnt the trade of a bookbinder. In 1815, with the Emperor Napoleon no longer a threat to Karl, or anyone else in Europe for that matter, Karl went back home. After working in an administration job, he set up a printing house in 1824, he mainly printed songbooks for schools. On 1 July 1835, he set up his first company, C. Bertelsmann Verlag. This new business specialised in religious publications. Karl took up leading roles in his church. He was prominent in many philanthropic activities, which was at the heart of his Christian religion. In this role, he saw to the building of a new rectory for his church and funded the building of a religious high school. Karl's son took over the business in 1849, a year before Karl died. That son's daughter, Frederica, married the bookseller Johann Möhn, which was one of the smartest things she ever did. The Möhn family continued to steer the Bertelsmann business from success to success, until 2009, when the last Mern family member passed away. By then, it was the largest bookseller in the world, Penguin Random House selling one in every four books. But how did this little publishing business get to the top? 
Well, Bertelsmann was obviously operating when the Nazis came to power in 1933, and by the time the Nazis had gone out of business, Bertelsmann was the biggest printer in Germany. How did that happen? When World War II ended, the victorious Allies did everything they could to stop Nazism making a comeback in Germany. So they were interested in what the Bertelsmann Company had done during the war. Had they been Nazi sympathisers? Heinrich Mohn was heading the company then. He wanted to get the company up and running now that the war was over. If he was found to have been cooperating with the Nazis, that would not have happened. In the late 1990s, a story got out that Bertelsmann had cooperated with the Nazis. The then chief executive of the company made a major statement at the New York Waldorf Astoria Hotel in front of an audience of 350 people, mostly Jews, just after Bertelsmann had taken over America's largest publisher, Random House. It now looked like this might turn sour. So this is what he said. During World War II, our company, the Carl Bertelsmann Publishing House, was one of the few non-Jewish media companies closed down by the Nazi regime. We had been publishing books that were banned by the Third Reich as subversive. Bertelsmann's continuing existence was a threat to the Nazi attempt to control freedom of expression. Okay, cool. Reinhard Mern, Heinrich's son in April 1947, helped Bertelsmann's finance expert, Fritz Moll, prepare a report for the British with a fictional account of Bertelsmann's resistance to the Nazis. The fairy tale was signed by Reinhardt. The story was very dramatic, I guess what you'd expect from a company that publishes some of the best novels. It said that the company experienced political difficulties and was mercilessly pressured and persecuted by the Nazis as a result of its religious orientation. It included the story of how Reichsführer SS Heinrich Himmler personally tried to have Bertelsmann shut down. I guess they stopped short of having Adolf Hitler himself having a business shut down, but it doesn't get much better than Himmler. So what is the real story of what happened with Bertelsmann during the war, and how did it come out as the largest publisher in Germany? Reinhard took over the running of the business from his father once things got a bit sticky in 1947. The family thought the business would have its best prospects of success if Heinrich stepped down and Reinhard stepped up. Smart move. Reinhard later explained that he didn't know what had happened with the family business during the war because he was serving with the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, in the elite Fallschirmpanzer Division, Hermann Goering. So, like Sergeant Schultz in Hogan's Hero, he knew nothing. He was captured by the Americans in Sicily in 1943 and spent the war in a prisoner of war camp in Kansas, which was definitely a whole lot better than fighting on the Eastern Front where the Nazis, the second most barbarous ideology in the world, slugged it out with what was easily by far the most barbarous, the communists. Heinrich took over the Bertelsmann Company in 1921 from his father, 
There seems to have always been health issues surrounding Heinrich, even from a young age. Despite the family wealth, the Gutesloh printing and publishing house was almost forced to close not long after Henry took over because of the effects of galloping inflation in Germany in 1923. Listen to this. In 1914, the exchange rate of the German mark to the American dollar was about 4.2 to 1. 4.2 to 1. Got that? Nine years later, it was 4.2 trillion to 1. Whoa! For the first time in the company's history, no new employees were taken on and highly experienced staff sadly had to be laid off. The business survived this crisis. It was a miracle that any business survived through that. It survived because Heinrich took the publishing business in a new direction by starting to publish popular literature. It looked the best way to survive. That's because it was. The business was then hit by the Great Depression in 1929. How much can a koala bear? Which lasted over the following years. The new direction of popular publishing, selling mass-produced cheap editions, a bit like an early version of Penguin, really bore fruit in surviving through the Depression and then in 1934, after the Nazis had come to power. Already being a major publisher put it into a good position to grow and certainly to be noticed by the Nazis as a business that would help them spread the Nazi ideals through publishing. Heinrich had been a member of a conservative party called the German National People's Party. It was swamped when the Nazi party got going full swing. We know that Heinrich was never a member of the Nazi party. He belonged to other Nazi organisations though, but so did everyone in Germany. Every child was a member of the Hitler Youth Movement. Every German worker was a member of the German Labour Front. The Nazi party had shut down all trade unions and every worker had to belong to the Labour Front. Heinrich joined Nazi party organisations. It made good business networking sense. He belonged to the Reich Literary Chamber, a professional organisation under the Reich Chamber of Culture. He donated money to organisations that his children were active in, the Hitler Youth Movement, the League of German Girls, the National Socialist Flyers Corps. He also belonged to the patrons circle of the General SS, the Algemeine SS, to which he regularly paid dues. One of the writers that Bertelsmann was astute enough to sign up early on with the Nazis coming to power was Willy Vesper, poet and writer. In 1931, Vesper had joined the Nazi party. In the public book burning in May 1933 in Dresden, Vesper gave the ceremonial speech. I guess he said, let the fire begin. He was one of 88 authors who in October 1933 signed the Vow of the Loyal Followers for Adolf Hitler, whose names were published in the Vossische Zeitung and the Frankfurter Zeitung. Already at the beginning of the 30s, Vesper was becoming known as an author of the Bertelsmann editions. In 1934, Bertelsmann's books rapidly gained popularity with the printing of a series of war experience books. One of the number one bestsellers of Bertelsmann was Fliegerarmsfeind, Flyers Against the Enemy, 
It published the popular children's Christmas book, and who didn't love this one? Christmas book for Hitler Youth. These were signs of the publisher's acceptability to the Nazi party. Many more books followed with tales about Germans in war. One of the books that clearly fitted in with Nazi policies was the interestingly titled book Sterilization and Euthanasia, a contribution to applied Christian ethics. Bertelsmann exploited new advertising strategies available in the traditional book trade, but also the potential of both books sold door-to-door and mail-order. With the pamphlet series Exciting Stories, selling by the millions to male teenagers and later to soldiers at the front, Bertelsmann was well and truly servicing the racist and anti-Bolshevik propaganda of the Nazi party. The movement of Bertelsmann's towards very active cooperation with the Nazis can be seen in two events only a couple of years apart. The first was Bertelsmann's 100th anniversary in the summer of 1935. The company headquarters were decorated on the outside with massive swastika flags that the Nazis loved so much they could never be too big. Dignitaries from Heinrich's church made up the bulk of the guests, but the presence of the Nazi officials couldn't go unnoticed. But by April 1939, just a few months away from the start of World War II, the new building for the company's printing presses was opened. Here, the Nazis were now in the majority of the guests. Speeches of the local Nazi party branch leader and the Nazi mayor of Gottesloh both compared the successful evolution of the publishing house with the rise of Hitler's Germany. The works council head of the German Labour Front, a Nazi organisation that had replaced trade unions, attested to Heinrich's allegiance to the new Germany. With the start of the Second World War, the exciting stories became the staple of Bertelsmann's popular literature. There were also booklets by so-called war reporters about the war as a big adventure with a sure ending in victory by the mentally and technically superior German troops. From autumn 1939, Bertelsmann were printing special Wehrmacht editions for the German army. The Wehrmacht editions ran to 20 million copies. The profits of Bertelsmann exploded and shot Bertelsmann to the top publishing house in Germany, far above even the Nazi party's central publishing house, Franz Eher. Bertelsmann was able to get to this position by having its own printing presses and a well-stocked supply of paper. It also arranged contracts with printers in occupied Holland and behind the Eastern Front. Heinrich's publication of Christian material was brought to a sudden halt in 1943 when Germany moved more onto a total war footing. And in 1944, there appears to have been some sort of shutdown of Bertelmann's printing operations, probably as a result of frustration by the Nazi party publishers because of their inability to compete with Bertelsmann's. There's no evidence of any particular anti-Semitic activity by Bertelmann's. About 50 Jews lived in the town of Goddersloe. The brown shirts, who carried out the infamous Night of the Long Knives in 1938, a particularly vicious and outstanding series of anti 
anti-Semitic actions in a regime where that is hard to imagine were especially active in this town. The Aryanization of Jewish real estate followed. It doesn't seem that Heinrich participated in this. Heinrich did take action when the Jewish wife of one of his employees was arrested and deported to Theresienstadt, a concentration camp, not a death camp. He also employed two girls who were part Jewish. Workers from the Netherlands were sent to work for Bertelsmann's. They don't appear to have had any Jewish slave labourers. It seems certain that some of the companies that Bertelsmann subcontracted with in Vilna in Lithuania and possibly Riga in Latvia did have Jews from the local ghetto working for them. But that can't really be a sin by Bertelsmann. The Bertelsmann factory was bombed by the Allies in the last year of the war. The roof came down, but the printing presses weren't damaged. The damage appears to have been enough to affect operations, but not to put the company out of business, so that when the war ended soon after, Bertelsmann's were able to get back into production quickly. Bertelsmann's had access to paper supplies from Holland. After the war, the Allies wanted to get school books printed to get the education system going again. To do that, Bertelsmann needed a license from the Allies to start printing. Bertelsmann were the perfect company to get this happening. But the Allies needed to be convinced that the publishers weren't Nazi sympathisers. The story I told you at the beginning of this program was the one that they came up with. And after that story was accepted in about September 1945, they were able to get back into business and started producing by 27 March 1946. Heinrich resigned and his son Reinhardt took over. And that removed any shadow of a doubt that the company was clean. So overall, it seemed that today's Bertelsmann with Random House and Penguin Publishers owes its present position in the world to Adolf Hitler, which makes the next story interesting. Joseph Goebbels was, in my opinion, the most loyal of Hitler's followers. All of the other cockroaches disappeared down the cracks in the floor or tried to do deals for themselves before Hitler's suicide in May 1945. Goebbels couldn't imagine life without Hitler and Nazi Germany. He and his wife Magda, along with their six children aged between 5 and 13, one boy and five girls, went to the Führer bunker in Berlin with the intention of dying with their leader. Magda drugged her children and then put cyanide capsules in their mouths, which she then broke, a quick and quiet end. Then she and her husband committed suicide. Goebbels was one of the few academically qualified Nazis. He held a PhD. He was an inspired manipulator of the truth. He was probably one of the first people in the world to use modern technologies and communication methods to mislead the broad public, an inspiration that much of today's media follows. In 2010, a historian had written a biography on Joseph Goebbels for Random House. Goebbels had kept incredibly extensive diaries. They not only covered his key political activities as one of Hitler's top advisers, but also full details of his seemingly endless conquests of women. If my memory serves me well, his diary ran to about 25 volumes. 
it was copied onto microfiche. At the end of the war, it couldn't be found. It took the collapse of the Soviet Union and the public being given access to materials that had hitherto been kept under lock and key by the communist regime for a microfiche copy of his diary to emerge in Moscow in 1992. The biography apparently has very extensive quotes from the diary. Goebbels' family put up their hands for royalties from Random House. First, Random House said they'd pay royalties of 1% of the net retail profits of the book, but later they withdrew that offer. The Goebbels family sued. When I say the Goebbels family, I mean the children of the two brothers and the two sisters of Joseph Goebbels. Since all of Joseph Goebbels' direct family perished, and that frightful May Day in the Berlin bunker. Random House then modified its offer to pay the royalties, but only on condition that they were paid to a Holocaust charity, which seems noble, highly moral and fair. Except for this, coming from the Bertelsmann Company, which made its fortunes by cooperating with the Nazis, it seems a bit rich to me. As Gunter Thielen said in a media release in 2002 when Bertelsmann came clean about its wartime past, I would like to express our sincere regret for the inaccuracies in our previous corporate history of the World War II era, as well as for the wartime activities that have been brought to light. So preaching about morals seems a little bit odd from a company that had the enormous success and enrichment from the Third Reich. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.